Back in the mid-1970s, I was in junior high school at the time, and my parents made a habit of boarding young single men who needed a place to stay and as they came across their path. And um, they, one of these men, his name, it was Stan Miller. And Stan was uh, in his mid-twenties. He was recently, fairly recently graduated from college and he's a teacher. He taught Spanish and French. So he taught at Winnetonka High School up in, Can I'm from the Kansas City area, Liberty particularly. And he taught at Winnetonka High School and um, every other class was Spanish and then French and then Spanish and then French. And to practice he would, I remember he would, he would speak every third word would be Spanish, French, English, Spanish, French, English. And he would try to carry on a conversation like that, just to practice. Well, <clears throat> he was also a navigator. Uh, anybody here familiar with the navigator organization? All right. They're, uh, they're known for their scripture memory programs, and Stan, uh, un, you know, he, Stan and I never, I was a new Christian at the time, and um, we never had a formal, let, let me disciple you, or Stan, would you disciple me? That never happened. That never took place. And yet he did without really realizing that he was doing it. Every day I remember going out on my front porch with him early in the morning and he would hand me his box of memory cards and there were a thousand of them in there. And I could pull out any memory card for 30 minutes and he would, I would give him the reference and he would give, quote the verse. And that's how he would review. I would just help him review them like that. And... Um, I, I'll never forget um, the impact that that had on me uh, all the way through into the 80s and 90s as I, as my family started to grow. I got married and my family started to grow and, and um, dealing with my children and everything. That, that never left me, the, the impact that he had upon my life. And yet he didn't really, you know, set out to disciple me. And, I, you know, I got to thinking when Rick asked me to uh, preach this morning, you know, I'm used to preaching expositionally through a book and things like that. And so this, but this is a one-time thing. I, we, we don't have time to go through an entire seminar all day today with, with the, like the book of Jonah or something. So, so I thought I would, I would leave you with one thing. It's a lot easier to leave a message and, and remember it if you only have one thing to remember. <laughs> so I, mean, I just want to leave you with one thing. And it's, it's what is discipleship and how does it really work in the real life, you know, in real life. Um, because so many of our attempts at discipleship, they, they just don't work well. And, and it doesn't really accomplish uh, what, it was, what we really wanted it to accomplish. Um, you know, following Jesus alone is not really what it means to be a disciple. Discipleship is not a code word for evangelism, nor is it a hierarchical system for spiritual growth or a way for a professional Christian to pass on their best practices to the novice Christian. Um, real discipleship is messy. 
it's imperfect, and it's honest. Jesus is not merely the start and standard of our salvation, but He is the beginning, middle, and end of our salvation. He is my salvation, not just when I was 16 and came to Christ, but every second of every day. The Gospel is for disciples who are also sinners. The Gospel is about saving and transforming entire communities in relationship, not mere individuals who go it alone. This kind of discipleship, Jesus is at the center with the church huddled around Him. Discipleship is both Jesus-centered and community-shaped. It is for disciples and for sinners. Disciples who sin. This kind of discipleship is in the end not about how I perform, but who I am. An imperfect person clinging to the perfect Christ, being perfected by grace. And in this I am not alone. I am one disciple among many. I no longer stand at the top of the stairs, but sit in the living room where we share our faith and our unfaith, our obedience and our disobedience, our successes and our failures. We fight. We fight together. We fight the good fight of faith. We struggle to believe the promises of God over the fleeting promises of the world, the flesh, the devil. We press into Christ's imitating obedience and victory over sin. That's what I mean by discipleship. I think that's what discipleship is. There's got to be a way to create an environment with someone else or someone else's. Uh, an environment such where you feel comfortable bringing your sin into the light because our tendency is to leave it in the dark and to suppress it. We've got to create relationships that have that kind of a, of a sensation. In Luke chapter 6, we read, <clears throat> And when day came, He, Jesus, called His disciples to Him and chose twelve of them, whom He also named as apostles. So, Jesus calls His disciples. Well, toward the end of His earthly ministry, Jesus made a startling statement in His uh, high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, and I quote from verse 4, I glorified you on the earth by accomplishing or finishing the work which you have given me to do. Now most of us remember that when Christ was on the cross, He purchased our redemption and He said on the cross, it is finished. By doing this, He died for our sins and set us free. So what did he mean earlier when he prayed his high priestly prayer in John 17 when he said, I have finished the work? Well, when you read the prayer carefully, you'll notice that he did not mention miracles and multitudes, but over 40 times, and I've counted them, he referred to the men whom God had given him out of the world, including men who had yet to be born. These men were his work. His ministry touched thousands 
but he trained 12 men. He gave his life for millions, and on the cross he declared it finished. But he gave his life for three and a half years to 12 men. And in this prayer, he declared it finished as well. When we come across a truth in Scripture that is done in the Old Testament, commanded by Christ, and modeled by the apostles, I think it's safe to say that this is a principle and a command that's for us. Discipleship is one of those truths. Now in 1 Kings chapter 19, let me get, get over to that. I didn't mark it in my Bible, so it'll take me a minute to find First uh, Kings. First Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 15. To the end of the chapter. The Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazel king over Aram. Wait a minute, First Kings 19. Yeah, okay. So, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over the king, uh, anoint king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of uh, Shaphat of Abimelech, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. So, it, verse seventeen: It shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave seven thousand. In Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Verse 19. So he prepared, he, excuse me, he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him. I don't know if you can think. I can't even imagine plowing with 12 Oxen, that's quite the setup, but anyway. And and he with the twelfth. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. He left the oxen, the, uh, he, Elisha, he, le he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again. For what have I done to you? So he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. Interesting story. Now, Jesus chooses men to be with Him. This was not a revolutionary idea in Jesus' time. 
because when we look at Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament, Elijah did not find Elisha in the schools of the prophets, studying and meditating. He found him working in the field. And I mean really working in the field. Just as the disciples were also called from their daily work to go to be with Jesus. When Jesus found His disciples, they too were busily working. Um, in Matthew chapter 4 we read, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, He saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And He said to them, Follow Me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's office, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up. And followed him. So Elijah did not beg Elisha to go with him or use his prophetic office to force him against his will into the ministry. From the record that we have of their discussion, it appears that Elijah just was perfectly willing to let Elisha bow out if he wanted to. It also cost Elisha something to follow Elijah. With Jezebel on the loose, as you, as you recall, Jezebel was the evil queen at the time, bringing persecution on them. It wasn't a very safe move to become a prophet uh, at that time in history. And when he killed his oxen as a signal that he was not going back to farming, what did Elisha end up doing for Elijah? He ended up serving him. Those who would lead must first learn to serve. And it is just as true that to disciple someone, a person must be willing to spend time with them in hours of conversation and just being together during the normal affairs of life. That's discipleship. Being with them. Also notice that Elijah never urged Elisha to continue with him in the work. Quite the contrary. On three occasions, Elijah encouraged Elisha to reevaluate their relationship and leave if he wanted to. And all three times, he refused. Discipleship should not be taken lightly, but viewed as something that should only be undertaken if both believe God is leading them into it. Discipleship is not a canned event where six men gather around mugs of coffee at Starbucks once a week. Those are fine things to do, but that's really not discipleship. Discipleship is the daily giving of oneself to others by spending time in meaningful conversation. So, what does discipleship consist of then? And I think we could go to Paul for this in 1 Timothy, or excuse me, 2 Timothy, chapter 1, he gives us uh, some things here that are very important as far as what does discipleship consist of. 
So in the first seven verses of 2 Timothy 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, but of power, love, and of a sound mind or disciplined mind. So here we see in these verses that Paul is four things as he disciples Timothy. Four activities that make up his discipleship experience with Timothy. First, Paul prayed for Timothy. So he, he labored night and day. He invested time in prayer for Timothy. Secondly, not only did he pray for him, but he encouraged him. Timothy had rough times. Uh, Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus. I don't know if you know a lot about Ephesus, but that would be rough. And it, sometimes it reduced him to tears, apparently, and maybe even for long periods of time. Paul didn't slap him and tell him to shape up or ship out. He just told him that he wishes he could be with him in person. Maybe so that they could pray to get, uh, uh, excuse me, cry together. <laughs> Paul reminded Timothy that his presence fills Paul with joy. And so not only did he pray for Timothy, but he encouraged him. And not only did he do that, but he also reminded him. He reminded him of his faith, of how he had gotten it. He reminded him of his calling into the ministry and of the time Paul laid hands on him and sent him out. You know, as I've done um, marital counseling and other kinds of family counseling, it's, a, it's amazing how many lies we're willing to believe. Um, and we find ourselves believing in lies. And a lot of times what, what's really helpful is for someone to come along and tell us what the, what the truth is. That this is what's true. Remember what's true. Hold on to what's true. And don't believe the lie. And a lot of times that's what needs, what needs to be uh, conveyed. Well, Paul did this with Timothy. But he didn't just remind him, but he, he challenged him. So he prayed for him. He encouraged him. He reminded him of things. And then he challenged him. I like this word picture of fanning into flame the gift of God which is in you to move, to grow, to do the first works, to not let your your spiritual life become dull and, and lethargic. Fan into flames like a bellows putting oxygen into a fire and watching the fire just explode. That's what that's what a in discipleship one does for the other. 
Also, <clears throat> he challenged Timothy not to give in to a spirit of fear, but to put his trust in God. So that he, he challenged him, he reminded him, he encouraged him and prayed for him. So, so what should a disciple do? So if you go to chapter 2 of the same, of the same uh, book, 2 Timothy, the first three verses, we see this. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Entrust the teaching I gave you with faithful men. You know they're faithful if they turn around and entrust it with other men. You know, uh, evangelism is never incomplete until those evangelized become evangelists. We, it's the faithful men who will take the gospel and take it to another generation and another generation and another generation. They'll entrust it to faithful men who will in turn turn around and entrust it to others. Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ. This is the kind of sharing that discipleship does, that disciples do. The suffering that we go through as a soldier of Christ. And so, in conclusion, discipleship starts with receiving Christ as your Lord and your Savior. And if you're here this morning and have never given your heart to Christ, Today is that day that you need to settle that and receive eternal life from Him. I would be more than happy to talk with you afterwards to show you that, how you can know Him as I know Him. Discipleship is done in the home, in the church, in the world. It's done everywhere. Discipleship should be a natural outpouring of one who is controlled by the Spirit of God. Um, think of the other day I was doing some sheetrock work, which was my favorite activity. And I didn't want to make a mess in the particular place that I was at in my kitchen, so I used a sponge instead of sandpaper. You go and you wring that sponge out and you fill it with water and you wring it out and you fill it with water and what's in it comes out of it. And you get it to where nothing's coming out of it except water. And that's kind of how it is with discipleship. Um, you know, we, we soak up the truth of God's Word and then we wring ourselves out over a world that needs His Word. And so we, we get so filled that we can't help but leak as we're going about our daily lives. And it, it's, it's evident to those around us that we're walking by the Spirit. It takes time. Discipleship is costly. And yet, it yields great benefits and is commanded by Christ. All of which are good reasons to pursue a discipleship relationship. So what's holding us back from engaging in this activity, this critical activity? Let's make it a goal sometime this year each Christian 
needs to have at least three friends. I mean, think about it. You need to have someone who is mentoring you. Someone who you are being encouraged from to grow, to become better. Like a, Bar like a Paul to, to Barnabas. A Paul to Timothy. And then we, the second friend we need, we need somebody who is with us, who is like on our level, and we can relate to and share with and open up to, uh, like a Paul and a Barnabas. And, and then we also need a third friend. We need somebody whom we are mentoring, who we are bringing along in the faith. Maybe a new Christian uh, in the faith that uh, is just learning of the things of God. All of these things help us grow and become more like Christ, and it builds the church. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for the way that You um, have not left us comfortless, but You've sent Your Spirit to be with us and to teach us all things. Lord, I pray for this church here that, that You would use it to, uh, to en enhance community and to bring not only bring people to Christ, but to grow them into mature Christians who love you with all their heart, who can turn around and lead others to Christ and lead them to spiritual maturity. Lord, make us uh, so uh, discontent with where we're at that we would always be looking forward to how much more we can do for you. I pray, Lord, that this year would be a fruitful year, that many would come to Christ and many would be uh, nurtured into spiritual maturity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.